Look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. Amen. That relates to what we've just sung. Let's see. I wore pink today. Okay? And pastel, soft, feminine colors. Okay? So it is Mother's Day, but we're not going to preach on Mother's Day. Uh, We had a great lesson in Sunday school, and we are grateful. You know, I can say that we all have mothers. I can, that's one of those absolute truths that, that you know, we, we, <laughs> we, we all have mothers <laughs> and fathers. <laughs> okay, turn to First Peter. First Peter here this morning. And uh, my notes are in here somewhere. I believe they are. They are. Actually, they're at First Peter chapter 2. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 here this morning. And I don't know if we'll get through all four of these duties this morning in this great verse, chapter 2, verse 17. We've been learning from chapter 2, verse 13 forward, we've been learning that submission to authority is in a large part of our being, having honorable conduct before believers. And Peter is concerned about that, if you've been with us as we've been going through this context. In regard to submitting to civil authorities, there's a major difference between the believer and the non-believer, isn't there? The non-believer submits because he fears the power of the sword. Rightfully so. God has given civil governments to justly exercise the power of the sword, and that often becomes a motive for the non-believer to submit to authority. But a Christian is completely different than that. No, the believer submits for the Lord's sake. And that's an entirely different motive. For the Lord's sake, you submit yourself to every human ordinance. Completely different. So we're different, and that shows. Verse 16 shows us the attitude with which a believer submits to authority. Also, as free, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants to God. As free, what a concept. The mind and conscience of the Christian is emancipated from human authority as final authority. A Christian does not acknowledge any independent human authority. Any and all such claims are false. They are acts of rebellion against God. A Christian will never agree to affirm that any man or collection of men are at the top. A Christian will never agree with a teaching, a philosophy, a statism, I don't care who it is, that puts man or a collection of men at the top of this matter of authority. 
We cannot do that because Jesus Christ is Lord. And God has installed His King. You can just read about that in Psalm chapter 2. And He has inherited every nation. And as He Himself said, all power and authority in heaven and in earth are Mine. Jesus is at the top. And that's what we confess when we become believers. We confess that Jesus is Lord. So we are free in that sense. We are free in that sense. Yet, the Christian willingly submits to all of God's instituted authority. Absolutely, including civil governments, because God has instituted it and we are His bondservants. Okay, we went over that in some detail last, last Sunday. So coming to verse 17 this morning, we have four commands. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now does Peter suddenly change the subject? No, he doesn't. But there's an immediate subject in our passage and a broader subject. The immediate subject is there in verse 13. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme. We see the continuation of that subject in verse 17, don't we? Honor the king. Okay, So verse 17 continues off of that thought of verse 13. But we have seen also there is this broader subject which goes back to verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that is, among unbelievers. The commands in verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Those relate to this goal of having our conduct honorable and excellent among unbelievers. And the command to fear God is certainly foundational to submitting to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. (laughs) that command to fear God. As bondservants to God, Peter leaves us in no doubt as to what we should be doing. These four exhortations should chart the course of our behavior. They should structure the course of our behavior. These four exhortations touch just about every area of our lives. Honor all people. This touches your relationship to every human being you come into contact with. It does. Love the brotherhood. This touches your relationship with every member of Christ's universal and local church on the entire earth. Love the brotherhood universally and locally. It touches our behavior. Fear God. Well, that touches our behavior in relationship to God Himself, doesn't it? Fear God. Honor the King. This touches your relationship, 
our relationship with the governing authorities that we live under. I can't think of four more practical commands that impact our lives as we follow our Lord Jesus who is at the top. (laughs) Who is at the top. These four together go a long way in showing us how we are to have our conduct honorable amongst unbelievers. So let's, let's see how many of these get through. Might only do, do one. We'll see. We can stop anywhere. Okay. I know we're not going to get through all four. We might get through two. I'm fairly confident, unless the Lord returns, we'll get through one. <laughs> so let's begin with the first one. Honor all people. There is an honor due to all human beings because they are made in the likeness of God. We can't simply love our neighbor. We can't simply love and honor, sorry, we can't simply love and honor the brotherhood and honor the king and ignore or despise the rest of humanity. We can't pick and choose as to who we are to honor. Honor all people because they're made in the image of God. So we don't get to pick and choose between which sex we'll honor or which ethnicity we'll honor and so forth. All of the, all of the picking and choosing that we as depraved sinners do as to who we'll respect and who we won't. No, we don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. The Lord calls us to honor all people, honor all men who are made in the image of God. We are to extend honor to unbelieving people. This can be challenging. Jesus did that. He really did. Perhaps you ought to read through the Gospels and, and, and see how did He honor all? He honored, he honored all of them. Wherever they were, whatever their background was, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, whether they were his enemies or those that cared for him, whether they were the city sinner or the self-righteous Pharisee, he honored all of them. He did. He did that. What an example and encouragement he is to us. They are made in the image of God. They have many attainments that reflect his glory. Indeed, these are nothing less than the natural gifts of God. We know why certain people are so talented in what they do. And there's a diversity there. We're not all talented in the same ways. And that's God's diversity on display and how He created us and all of these things. You know, and we're mucking that all up by denying that it's God that makes us in His image. And the diversity does not spring from random chance. The diversity of humanity springs from God's diversity in Himself and His creating humanity in His image is where all this diversity comes from. And we ought to honor and respect that when we see it and not be jealous when I didn't get your diversity, or you didn't get mine, and suddenly our sinful hearts, what? 
make distinctions based on that. But that's not God's fault. That's our fault. We've kind of veered off the path here a little bit. But we're to honor, we're to honor all men. So, yes, we do not, we cannot approve their rebellion against God's authority. We can't do that. Rather, we are called to expose it. But it is a false dichotomy to say we owe them no honor or can give them no respect because of their rebellion to God and rejection of His Son. That's a false dichotomy. When all your co-workers are engaging in the disrespect of another person, you cannot participate in that. No, can't do that. I would be more graphic, but I won't be. doesn't matter who they are or what they are. When we start engaging in that self-righteous disrespect, the way we treat any person, we're stepping outside of what the Lord calls us to do. It's very easy to do. We have to think carefully about these things. I remember during the, uh, I think it was the second Iraqi war, I can remember when uh, one of the managers set up a TV in our, in our workplace during, and, and it had the news and, and the uh, imageries and images and stuff from the war. And of course, working for Lockheed Martin, you know, you're kind of interested in that kind of stuff. But I remember they had a clip. They had an actual photography clip of dropping, I don't know, a 500-pound ordinance or something on a particular building in Baghdad. And the clip showed a perfect, right through the center of the top of the building. The precision was just awesome. That bomb went right through the middle of the center of the top of that building. And... We were a bunch of engineers there standing watching this. And my fellow engineers, they all cheered. They cheered. And I looked at that, and I couldn't do that. I couldn't cheer. And I wasn't objecting to the war, but I couldn't cheer because I knew fairly certainly that building had human beings in it. And I couldn't cheer at their destruction. Okay? No, they're human beings. I couldn't do that. You see, that's not honoring all men. So we need to think about that. Um, Yeah, I'll never forget that. I thank God that that I, that I didn't share. God had made me different from my colleagues. Okay? I have no doubt I would have cheered and jumped up and down prior to being converted. <laughs> no, no, no doubt whatsoever. So, this command, honor all 
people, all men. Is, is Peter perhaps countering a danger? That of the ungodly Jewish attitude? Which promoted a despising of Gentiles? That that would get carried over into the new chosen race and the new holy nation? Peter used those very terms. Is he countering the danger of that? These very terms of identity that, that the Jews in their self-righteousness would use to not honor the Gentiles and actually despise them? How radical this command, honor all men, would sound to many Jewish ears. Can you imagine? They were used to treating the Gentiles as dogs. Okay? And now their Messiah is calling them as Jewish believers to honor all men. It's radical. The gospel is radical, isn't it? It is. It's culturally radical. And at times we just lose sight of that. But in, in, in regard to the Jewish believers, this is radical. Honor all these Gentiles. Okay, that's a radical thing. And it's radical for us too. When we think about the command to honor all men, if we are honest with ourselves, we would we would have to confess that too often what we are concerned about is that we receive the honor of all men. We are so much more concerned about that, aren't we? That we receive the honor. Do you get up in the morning and do you go out among people and are you concerned, now I need to honor all human beings I come into contact with? Or do you get up in the morning and go out there and you're kind of concerned, will my peers honor me? Will I receive honor? And we're all tied up. This command can help you escape that prison. And the more we seek the honor and praise of man, you know what? The more we get imprisoned. We really do. We really do. And the Lord help us. He delivers us from that progressively. And it can come back. But no, here we're called to honor others and not be so obsessed with our own honor. And if you're busy honoring others, maybe that will deliver you from trying to be so busy in sponging up as much honor for yourself as you can possibly get. I have a heart just like yours. That's why I can preach like this. (laughs) Okay? We know what is in there. But we know the Savior who delivers and transforms us into His image. What a glorious work He's undertaken for us. Only that we would be humble enough to receive it. Okay, so the Christian, as he or she is delivered from this universal sin of pride, is the only one who can really do what the Apostle exhorts us here to do. 
It's impossible to honor others if you are in competition with them or fixated on being honored ourselves. Does this command to honor all men have something to do with the practice of slavery? Oh, yes, it does. This command absolutely has something to do with the practice of slavery, doesn't it? It sure does. I'm going to quote just a little bit for you from John Brown. Only a few of you know who John Brown is. That's unfortunate. (laughs) But this book I'm quoting from was originally published in 1848. When was our Civil War? 1865? It's 1861, maybe. Okay. 1848. Okay. And he's talking about this command, honor all men. He's talking about the basis of that command being us created in the image of God. And he, this is, this is what he says. The lack of this feeling has contributed in no limited degree to the production and permanence of some of the greatest social evils which prevail in the world today. Had man had reverence for man, slavery with all its horrors could never have existed. Every feeling like honoring our common nature must be extinct before man can make property of his brother. Ah, I love that. Let me read that again. Every feeling like honoring our common nature must be extinct before man can make property of his brother can treat him as if he was not a person at all, but a thing, a portion of his goods and chattels. That's right. That's right. It has been justly remarked that, quote, respect is the parent of kindness. Oh, that's an interesting thought. That respect is the parent of kindness. From contempt to injury, the transition is short and easy. He that despises human nature lacks only the opportunity to oppress man. That's powerful. That's 1848. How many of you know who William Cowper is? Many of you. He wrote a lot of poetry. And actually, he wrote poetry about slavery. And I have a hard enough time just reading narrative. Reading poetry, is I, I can hardly do it. I'm going to attempt to read a piece of William Cowper's poetry. (laughs) And you know, I can remember in college, 
despising poetry. And you know what I thought? This is just a this is just a way to make things difficult to understand what's being said. I had no aesthetic sense. And so that has left me poetry challenged. <laughs> okay? But William Cowper came across this. The natural bond of brotherhood is severed as the flax that falls asunder at the touch of fire. He finds his fellow guilty of a skin not colored like his own. Wow. Yeah, brotherhood severed. He finds his fellow guilty of a skin not colored like his own. And having power to enforce the wrong for such a worthy cause, dooms and devotes him to his lawful prey, chains him and tasks him and exacts his sweat with stripes that mercy with a bleeding heart weeps when she sees inflicted on a beast. Wow. That's right. The point is, slavery is to treat your human brother, we'll use that sense, as a beast of burden. And Cowper says, even mercy weeps to see the animal mistreated, much less a human being. Okay? That's right. Honor all people. Does this command to honor all men have something to do with abortion? Ah, absolutely. We've classified another whole segment of humanity as something less than human which opens the door wide open to mistreat them. Absolutely. Honor all people. What about those in the womb? That's right. Does this command to honor all men have something to do with abusive labor practices? Sure it does. Sure it does. You know, we ended up with unions and child labor laws because of the humanity. And I'm not a socialist, okay? <laughs> Relax. But we're sinners, you see. And we don't carry out this command as how we treat one another. And that's another example. The abusive labor practices. And again, using children 
almost like animals. And, and, and all of this. The laborer is worthy of his wages, Jesus says. And his respect. You know the Bible's teaching about the laborer. And you know the respect the laborer is to receive. And you're not even to hold his wages beyond the end of the day. And the scripture has just a wonderful ethic about servants and masters and, and all of this. But of course, we as sinners don't follow the commands. So, you will find these headings in John Brown's commentary on this expression, these headings. Honor is not to be confined to the brotherhood, but rendered to all to whom it is due. Another heading, honor is not to be confined to classes, but extended to all men. So that's another issue, the issue of classes. No. Okay, so there, we got through the first one. Filled your mind up with that. Let's go on to the next one. Love the brotherhood. Wow. Let's begin by thinking about the idea of being brothers and sisters with one another. Conversion profoundly changes our relationship with God in Christ so that the closest possible connection is created between individuals who, by nature and circumstances, originally had nothing to do with one another. Conversion changes our relationships. But since the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have all the same Father. And that makes us the closest of kin. In New Testament time, that Jew and that Gentile, because of what biblical conversion is, suddenly become, boom, the closest of kin. Because we're all born of the same father. That master and that slave, born of the same father, suddenly become the closest of kin. That's right. That's right. It's God causing us to be born again as our spiritual father that makes us brothers and sisters in a profound way. To use some of Paul's language, we have all received the adoption as sons. We're all the adopted sons and daughters of the same father. When were you adopted? When were you adopted? And we could all tell our stories when we were adopted, can't we? We can, we can. 
The Father adopted me when He justified me. And that didn't happen in eternity past, my friend. That happened when I believed in His Son. We are justified by faith. Abraham was justified when he believed. Okay? And then adopted. So we all have our adoption stories, don't we? When the Father came and signed the papers and adopted us to be His sons and daughters. These terms, brothers and sisters, that are labels upon us are just profound and profoundly rooted in what it means for God to save us. And so we are to love the brotherhood. That connection goes even deeper, right? We have all been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever. We've all been born again from the same seed. (laughs) From the same seed, the, the incorruptible word of God which lives and abides forever. We are genetic twins. (laughs) Right? We're all born from the same seed. And that causes us, when we run into a believer, wherever we run into them, there is an instant connection Whatever culture, whatever nation, whatever age, when we run into another true believer, we immediately have that genetic identity with them. That's the profound concepts under these labels, brothers, sisters. Jesus says in that passage, in Matthew about call no one master and call no one teacher. And he's contrasting how the Pharisees distinguished themselves by seeking the honor of men. And and Jesus just says to them, but you, but you are all brethren. Just that one phrase transforms the whole thing. Jesus says, but you to his disciples. You are all brethren. Isn't that wonderful? That's just, that is just a wonderful thing. So, Peter says, love the brotherhood. But there's something more going on here. We've got to go further. The exhortation is not simply love the brethren. And that's why none of our translations translate it that way. The exhortation is, love the brotherhood. And the idea is that uh, is one of association. The lexicon says this, a group of fellow believers, a fellowship. The NIV translated it, love the brotherhood of believers. The brotherhood of believers, brothers and sisters, join together, form a brotherhood. And so the command is to love the brotherhood, 
Together they form one entity. It's singular. Okay? Love the brethren is plural. Not this. This is singular. Love the brotherhood. The expression, the family of believers, is appropriate. That's what he's saying. This is not an individualistic command. It's love the family of believers. I think that's the NET, NET translation, and of course they footnote it, but love the family of believers. You see, the emphasis of this command is different from chapter 1, verse 22. Love one another fervently from a pure heart. It overlaps, but it's different. There the emphasis is individual. Here the emphasis is corporate, collective. You see, you can't love the brotherhood if you're a, quote, solo Christian. You can't do that. You can't be a brotherhood of one. Can't. Can't do that. That's important, isn't it? Yeah. Here it's corporate, collective. There is a legitimate, indeed here commanded, affection, care, and concern for the group as a whole. The group as a whole. It is the brotherhood prospering. Is there unity? Is there purity in the family? Is there obedience to Christ's marching marching orders as a whole? Not simply separate individuals, but as one body. Paul, when Paul offers that, that metaphor that we are all, what, members of one another. And when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. And when one member is honored, the whole body is honored. That concept is very parallel, similar to, to this Peter's use of love the brotherhood. Love the family as a family. So, <clears throat> there is a legitimate, indeed commanded, affection, care, and concern for the group as a whole. There can be little doubt that the concept here is that of believers related to one another, yet also separated from all the people of the world. You see that? Peter is showing us a lot of how we're separate from the world. We're in the world, but we're very different. And now we have this other group, the brotherhood. The brotherhood is distinct and separated from the world. We're joined together as a brotherhood, and in that we are distinct from the world. In the book of Acts, in those early chapters, it said, as the disciples, the numbers grew... The others held them in high respect, but they did not join themselves to them. See, this 
brotherhood formed, it's separate from the world, in the world, distinct from the world. Ah, guess what we call that? Any guesses? Begins with a C. The church. (laughs) That's what we call that. The church is the called out ones. They form into this community of the brotherhood. And yeah, the church is distinct from the world. The real church is distinct from the world. Okay, so the concept, the concept of church, I, I, I don't believe I'm exaggerating or stretching. This concept of brotherhood, you're one family, and that's different from all people. Peter has already said that. What? You're a chosen race. You're a holy nation. You're separated out. You're in the world, but you're distinct. And it's vitally important for the corporate witness that we follow this command. The corporate witness to the world hinges on loving the brotherhood. That's a key. They will know you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another, they will see it. Unbelievers that come into this church should see that as they visit or hear the gospel here. So we're exhorted to to love the brotherhood. That, That corporate aspect is here. What does it mean to to love the brotherhood, affection and sacrifice. (laughs) Affection and sacrifice. Love covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) We can multiply things. What does it mean? Well, to love the family, joining oneself to it. Join oneself to the family. You've got to be part of the believing body. Praising together, praying together, laboring together, suffering together, rejoicing together, weeping together. Love the brotherhood. We join ourselves to that community. How do we love the brotherhood? By preserving its unity. You want to love the brotherhood, the family, which is as much as in you. Seek to preserve its unity, which is constantly under attack. We have to strive to do that. Not only preserving its unity, but preserving its purity. You love, you love the family, we got to labor to preserve the purity of that brotherhood. Seeking its increase. Absolutely. John writes that wonderful letter in 1 John. He extols how our fellowship is with one another and our fellowship is with the Father. And he says, we write this, that you too may come and have this fellowship with us. Okay? You love that family. You want to see its increase. You want to invite others to come in and join 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. Seeking its true good. We love the brotherhood by seeking its true good. We could go on and on, but, but there's a corporate dimension here that we need to get a hold of. And I suspect that we in America are tinged by the individualism of our age far more than we realize we are. You know, and, and, and we view the body, we view the church, you know, like we do Mayo Clinic, you know. We have a problem, we need to get to one of the best hospitals and try to get it fixed. That's how we view the church. Now, certainly, the church is a hospital, but it's so much more than that, you see. And, we, and you know, we view the church as somewhere where I go and my needs are met and my family's needs are met or whatever, and we, and we just view it like a kind of a social service organization. <laughs> and that's not good. That's not what loving the brotherhood looks like. We're, we're highly individualistic. And, and we need to just think about that. So, let us examine closely our attitudes about loving the brotherhood as a family and as a, as a brotherhood. I think even as leaders we should think about that. You know, what, is that, what does that look like? And I'm not here to discourage you. I'm certainly here to challenge you. And as Paul said, I, you know, exhort you to excel still more. <laughs> okay, where, where Paul told the Thessalonians, you know, you have no need of anyone to teach you. You are taught by God to love one another. And he, he, he gave him that praise because of reports he heard about the church there at Thessalonica. And, and, but Paul says, but we urge you, brethren, what? To excel still more. And so we have just a wonderful concept. I just saw my brother from the Philippines. <laughs> Welcome back. It's Mr. David Barraza. But only half of him is here. So we're praying for your, your dear bride uh, still there in the Philippines, David. It's a blessing to see you. Okay, I think on that note... It's 12.00. We will, we will stop. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, ah, even that we can call you that. And that you came and adopted us. And that will never, ever, ever change. Thank you, our Father, that you called us, adopted us, and that can never be undone. Thank you for making us not only your children, but making us a family. Thank you for the new life, causing us to be born again. Thank you for the new spiritual genetics, Father, that has turned us into wonderful things that we could never ever dream of being because you're the God that creates and recreates and raises us from among the spiritually dead through the power of Jesus' resurrection. Thank you for all these things.
And, O Father, convict us and forgive us where where we're tinged from our remaining depravity and from our culture. Lord, help us. And, Lord, help us to honor all men, all created in Your image. And help us, Lord, wage the fight against those who despise You and Your image in all that You have created. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us outside and inside the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.